and welcome to the episode one of the Wildlife Garden podcast. My name's Ellie. I'm Ben. And we're professional organic gardeners in Nottingham, pretty much bang in the middle of the country. We're starting this podcast for lots of different reasons, but primarily because we both absolutely love wildlife and indeed gardening. And we'd like to share everything that we know and learn about both of them with as many of you as possible. So that's you, if you're listening. Um, We've also been inspired by a number of other podcasts that we regularly listen to. So we don't actually talk to each other that much when we're gardening. We tend to have either Birdsong um, or one of these other podcasts. And we just wanted to give give them a bit of promotion because they really are fantastic and I can highly recommend Roots and All by the very ever incisive uh, Sarah. And she often interviews lots of different people from across the board in horticulture. But it was actually her that I heard coin the term gentle gardening, which oh, is, that's nice. It is nice, which is what we uh, aim for as well. And no, no, if you, any of our customers are listening, we work really, really hard. Oh, well, obviously we work hard, but (laughs) (laughs) not to the detriment of wildlife. (laughs) Um, We also listen to quite a few uh, wildlife podcasts as well. And in the last few weeks, we've just found a really good one, which I can highly recommend called UK Wildlife, which I think has been running... It's been about a year, hasn't it? Yeah, or maybe just over a year. And that podcast is, is by a couple of wonderful wildlife photographers, and they basically just sit and have a chat about the wildlife they've spotted yeah they're great they talked in one i just listened to everything you can possibly want to know about the three most um populous ant species in the uk i mean who doesn't want to know that i wanted to know well yeah no exactly um so that's just two and obviously well there's a few more and we, we will mention more podcasts as we go along um but yeah, so essentially we're gardeners and we just don't think that you can garden while ignoring all that wonderful wildlife out there. And indeed, if the more you know, the more you realise that you can actually use it to help you make your gardens look really beautiful. So that's a little bit about why we want to do it. Um, and so, yeah, just to move on to a bit of a negative, um, I think it's no great secret that in the UK, the state of nature is uh, not so good, is it? No, we're one of the most nature-depleted countries in the whole world. Yeah, so uh, wherever you look, you can you can read about populations of different species of invertebrates, birds, mammals, all in freefall decline, which is obviously devastating. But with this podcast, we want to, if you're lucky enough to have a garden, that is, give you as many scientifically sound tips and advice and things that we've learned, things that we do um, to help reverse those trends, basically. Yeah, we can all do something in our gardens at home. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, amazingly, there's around 430,000 hectares of garden uh, in the uk which in the standard geographer's unit is just a bit more than the fifth of the size of wales i don't know why they always use wales that's the country it, not yeah. of a whale yes yes the country wales so it's, it is a huge area really and yeah even... i mean if you totaled up all of the size of garden just in england it's actually more than four and a half times the size of all of the national nature reserves combined so collectively while i mean we our gardens what four by seven meters maybe smaller yeah it's like a yard and despite its uh, diminutive size we know that the things that we do in it can help that wildlife and we want to promote that to all of you out there 
So yeah, a little bit about how the podcast will work. Um, obviously, this is episode one, so we're fully expecting to listen back and do lots of cringing. Um, but we're hoping to release one fortnightly. And I think Ben will agree that we're both full to the brim of things that we want to share with you. But we understand that you probably don't want to listen to a five hour long podcast. No. <laughs> so what we're going to do, hopefully, is uh, pick a topic each week to discuss. And that can be a species it can be something we've seen something we've done that week something you can do jobs for the weekend exactly it's anything basically anything goes as long as it's related to gardening and wildlife yep we're going to try and release the podcast on wednesdays so then we can give you some upcoming advice on events as well that's coming up um and like we said jobs that you can do in your garden indeed um and today is is a bit of an introductory one really so we're not I mean, the topic is welcoming us. The topic is us. Uh, the topic is us, yeah. But also, we're going to cover um, some of the news this week. Um, and we're going to be talking about our native plant of the week, which is something we'll do in every podcast. And, uh, well, I mean, there's about 1,400 native plants to the UK. And many of those make excellent garden plants. Um, but the thing with native plants is that they're particularly good for wildlife because lots of species really like to eat the leaves of a specific plant. So that's particularly true for moths and butterflies. Their caterpillars will often be quite specific about what they like to eat and they'll have evolved to eat the leaves of a native plant. Yeah, and the RHS, um, that's the Royal Horticultural Society, for those of you that don't know, um, they've done a lot of work on this as well. And I mean, this this stuff is really mainstream now. It's absolutely fantastic to see, but they have realised that native plants are important for our invertebrate species. Um, obviously, there's lots of beautiful flowering native plants, and so we're going to try and focus on those. Um, yeah. Yeah, this um, week is going to be the primrose. Yes, we're going to get quite scientific. A bit nerdy. A bit nerdy, just to pre-warn you. Um, yeah, so that's it. Native Plant of the Week, we're going to, as Ben said, do a bit of the news, uh, things that we've tra- trawled Twitter to find, to bring to you. And we're not we're not going to shy away from the bad news because I think hopefully it'll be used as a catalyst for people to want to actually do something. But we will try and balance it with the good news. And, and the good news tends to be success stories so stories about where people have got involved and actually tried to reverse and successfully reverse those trends that we talked about earlier um yeah and that's why we want to hear from you as well because mm. a lot of the good news that's out there is from people doing conservation work but conservation work doesn't have to be in the countryside we can all do something in our own gardens um so if you are a listener and you'd like to um get in touch and tell us what you've been up to then we'd love to share it on the podcast and we've set up a Facebook group to help us do this. And we've got a, a Twitter um, handle as well. So on Facebook, we are facebook.com forward slash the wildlife garden podcast. And on Twitter, we are the wild GDN for wildlife garden. But everything that we're going to link to today, everything we're going to be talking about and Latin names and all the rest of it, you don't need to have your notebooks out. We're just going to put um, full details of everything we talk about in the show notes for the podcast. Brilliant. And yeah, please do get in touch. Uh, I just want to start the ball rolling really on the what have you been up to this week? Because we've had we've had a really good week. Seen a barn owl? Well, we saw a barn owl. I had a a flyby by a sparrowhawk yesterday, which Ben managed to miss. 
He was a yeah. bit sad about that. It was quite amazing. And he was trying to claim that she saw two Sparrowhawks. I think it I saw none, was the same one. I think it, it was, was the same one twice. <laughs> I'm um, still counting and it. And you saw a gold crest as well. I saw a gold crest and then I had a little gaggle of long-tailed tits coming. I heard my first bee of the year. Oh. I didn't tell you that. No, you didn't tell me that. Yeah, it buzzed right past my head. Oh, sharing I should caring, say I then. heard it. I didn't see it. I heard it. You didn't dig it up, did you? No, no, no. Okay, good. Um, yeah, so, and also, oh no, probably the most important thing, uh, last week we actually dug a wildlife pond for one of our clients and, uh, I mean, absolutely fantastic thing that anyone, well, most people can do if you have a garden. Everybody can have some sort of water. Water feature, exactly. And yeah, what was great is that the client that we work for, I think is probably more enthusiastic about toads than we are even. Yeah, stories, but from his partner of him sort of sitting for hours and watching them, which is just lovely to hear and really encouraging. Better than the TV, isn't it? It is, definitely. Um, So yeah, please do share your stories as well, things you've seen, things you've done, etc. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, and we're going to be also talking about um, the work of different organisations around the country. Like I said, we'll share their events that are coming up. But we just wanted to say, if it sounds like we know a lot through this podcast, then basically it's just because we've got it off um, these organisations. I mean, a lot of these, there's specific charities and trusts for everything to do with natural history in the UK. butterflies. Ants, butterflies, (laughs) reptiles. (laughs) tiles amphibians you know you name it there's an interested group in it and often their websites are packed full of information so doing this podcast is well it's just a a catalyst for us learning more yeah and it means we can be better gardeners for our clients but also we can share some of that with you the knowledge is quite astounding and we uh, like we said we're going to get quite geeky with this um so uh yeah if it sounds like we know a lot then don't be afraid. We're learning as we go along as well. We're not zoologists. And that no, really when is we the first level started that... gardening, we realised that we didn't know anything. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. I mean, things that where there's a lot to learn, it doesn't make it hard. It just means you just need to take it bit by bit. So yep. we're going to start with your own garden. Exactly. Observe. So we'll just break it up into into individual topics and we'll cover something specific each week. Yeah. And just uh, just another thing on the organisations as well. Um we, I mean, a lot of you will know about the Wildlife Trust and the RSPB and, and the really big ones. And hopefully a lot of you are members already as well. We actually just became paid up members of the Wildlife Trust in the last couple of weeks, which we're pleased with. Yeah, they're doing a half price sale. Not that you should give them half price. No, It'd be no. good if you gave them full price anyway. It enticed anyway. us in. And then, it, it, yeah, so pay pay what you will. Um, but a lot of us already actually unwittingly enjoy a lot of their nature reserves across the UK. So I think it's really important that we sort of give back where possible. And and the pandemic hasn't been easy on charities in particular. So No, a lot of them, especially the bigger ones, will be running uh, events, paid for events. And some of them, you know, have they charge you entry if you're not a member into their reserves as well and all that income's just gone so yeah really we really encourage you to sign up it's not too late to buy it as a christmas present for somebody or an early christmas present for next year even (laughs) or a birthday present i mean a charity membership is a great thing to do and there is a charity out there for everybody like we've already said so it doesn't matter what you're interested in Um, there's somebody doing good conservation work about it we will try and avoid acronyms as well because a lot of these charities do 
have acronyms as their name um but if we forget to expand that acronym then please do get in touch but we will be putting their their names in the notes as well just so that you can have a look at the things they do yeah and the final thing um that we're going to do as part of the podcast is we're going to run a little book club now we sort of when we were first thinking about topics we were going to cover we just had a look at our bookshelves and realized that there's loads of books that we haven't even read turns out we're really good at collecting books yeah, like actually, lots of people buying but then... the book doesn't mean you've read it yeah that's my usual problem um anyway so we're going to run this book club by we're just going to tell you a book in advance and we'll come to what book we're going to be talking about next week later on today but basically you can then read it along with us you know if you can access a library um I know the library in Nottingham where we are has got a fantastic collection of natural history books. So often they'll have a copy that you can borrow, but you can also download them online. Uh, yeah, download them online if you read on a Kindle or something like that. Or of course you could just go ahead and buy them. So a lot of the books um, are written in conjunction with um, an author that's worth supporting and some charities as well. So we'll also link to pages where you can places where you can buy them online and we will introduce our book of the week at the towards the end of this podcast i think so i guess uh let's make a, a start with the the news like we mentioned and this week ben's actually drawn the shorts jaw and is going to be delivering the bad news to everyone yeah i'm the bad news guy today we'll try and balance we'll try and keep that balance though yeah. <laughs> I'll take my turn sometime. When we're in people's gardens, some of our customers call me the Grim Reaper because I always have to give them the bad news about their trees or whatever. It is true. You do it so well, though, Ben. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so bad news. Um, we will try to, whenever we give you some bad news, we're always going to try and give you something that you can do about it at home. And there's definitely some things you can do about this in your own garden. And also we're going to try and keep the news quite specific to gardening generally so there's loads of places you can go and look for wildlife news and and just news about the countryside in general but in some instances things that happen in the countryside are going to affect your garden and we've got uh, an example of this today um now in the countryside for use in farms but it's also used in the horticultural trade there's been a group of pesticides called neonicotinoids now, these have been used for quite a while now, but they've been found to be extremely destructive to wildlife, in particular to um, flying insects, things like bees and butterflies. Now, these were banned under EU law a couple of years ago. Yeah, and there was huge publicity about that. So many people got behind it. Yeah, there was a Save Our Bees campaign, yeah. um, and it was really successful. So again, it shows that conservation work and things and public pressure can can make a change. Um, but sadly, this change has been rolled backwards slightly. So there's been a secret campaign launched by the NFU. And we say it's a secret campaign because they asked their members to lobby DEFRA and the Secretary of State to ask for an emergency use um, allowance for neonicotinoids on sugar beet. There's always an excuse, isn't there? Yeah, there's always a reason why they want to water down the law or you know bring something back. And they did this without it going for any public scrutiny. So the first time anybody in the conservation world and the wildlife world found out about this was when the application was made. Um, now, there's something you need to know about sugar beet, which is that it's generally non-flowering by the time they come to harvest it. So you would think that actually this isn't too bad for bees um, and butterflies because they're not going to be visiting the flowers because there aren't any flowers for them to visit. 
But for years now, we've been trying to halt the decline of the amount of wildflowers in the countryside. Um, we've lost about 97% of wildflower-rich meadow in the UK since the 1930s. So public money has been going on farm subsidy for a long time now to encourage farmers to plant wildflowers along the edges of their fields. So that's a, a big strip of wildflowers. Yeah. yeah, it's been absolutely great. And in lots of parts of the country, it's having a really beneficial effect on wildlife. So we thank any farmers out there that are doing that. But in this instance, in the crazy backwards thinking, upside down, topsy-turvy world of parts of the nfu um they've <laughs> their claim um to make this reintroduction of neonics on sugar beet more environmentally friendly is that they're going to include a herbicide as part of it so it's going to kill all the wildflowers in what? the area um with the just insane idea that by killing the wildflowers they're killing off the food for the bees so the bees aren't going to come but also, it doesn't only affect bees. So, you know, these neonicotinoids. Yeah, they they're actually... broad spectrum pesticides. Mm. So, they'll just kill anything that they touch, basically. So, yeah, it's a very narrow way of looking at trying to minimize impact, something that is just truly terrible. And, you know, it was reversed. Sorry, it was banned for a reason a couple of years ago. Yeah, it's worth um, sort of remembering that about 35 species of bee in the UK are already at risk of extinction. And that includes about a third of the bumblebee species. So we should be doing everything we can to help help stem this decline. Now, bees and lots of other invertebrates are affected mainly by four things. So that's climate change, it's pests of the, the insects themselves, um, but it's also pesticide use and habitat loss. And so this is hitting two of those four, really. They're both using the pesticide and they're getting rid of their habitat at the same Unbelievable. Time. So there Very is something sad. you can do about this. The Pesticide Action Network UK, which are a brilliant group, um, they've written a letter and it's been signed by all the interested organisations. So that's people like the Bumblebee Conservation Trust. And they've sent that letter to um, DEFRA and to the Secretary of State. And you can find that on their website. Again, links will be in the show notes. And you could adjust that letter if you wanted and you can write it um, or you can write your own letter, of course, to your MP. Yep, so lobby your MP. We'll put a link into how you can find your MP in the show notes. And we'll, we'll certainly be doing exactly that, even though we're in the heart of Nottingham. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, another thing you can do is sign a petition um, to Parliament. So if any of you have signed these before, um, once a petition reaches 100,000 signatures, it's automatically granted a debate in Parliament. And somebody's put together a petition calling for it to be banned again. Um, and it's already well over 50,000 the last yeah. time I looked. So, and that was a few days ago, wasn't it? And I've certainly certainly got friends on Facebook that seem to be sharing it and signing it. So it's really heartening, again, to see that there are a lot of people that are behind this um, this campaign. Yeah, we just want some scrutiny of this decision um, because it just went completely under the radar, like I said. So please sign that petition. Um, we've signed it. And the final thing you can do is to do something in your own garden about this. So even if we can't control what's going on in the countryside, you can control what you're doing at home. And the number one thing is just to plant lots of flowers. And who doesn't love flowers? Yeah, I mean, there's no, Good for us there's and no the downside. Um, just uh, Even better, you could put in a flowering tree, for example, an apple or something. Yeah, apples, pears, cherries. I mean, they all give you a bumper crop, you know, yep. so we all win. Indeed. And the fruit is also good for um, birds later on in the year as well. 
Yeah. Not so, that you want the birds to get all of your cherries. No, and we will go into loads more detail, I'm sure, about specific plants and things that you can put in your garden. Obviously, that's the point of this podcast. Um, and bees are certainly going to be a topic of conversation in future episodes as well. Yeah. And at home, um, we also really encourage you to put down the pesticide bottle. We are professional organic gardeners. Um, we show through our work that you really don't need to use pesticides to keep a garden looking good. And really, there's just no reason to be using pesticides at home. There really isn't. We actually took the decision a couple of years ago to go organic. And we've been operating, so our business is Ellie's Wellies Organic Gardening now. But before that, we were just a, well, I say just a maintenance gardening company. A good one, obviously. <laughs> um, but we, yeah, we took the decision to go organic and we with trepidation announced this to our existing customers and we were just delighted to to see that actually everyone received it really well and lo and behold when we stopped not that we ever sprayed that much but we don't do it at all now and our gardens have really never looked any better and it you know hordes of caterpillars have not come in and ravaged no. <laughs> every plant in the garden as some adverts for various pesticides and herbicides as well will we'll kind of claim it just doesn't happen it just doesn't happen if you do go organic there are some things that you need to change in the management of your garden so you need to do things a little bit differently but really it's it's dead easy and yeah we'll definitely be covering um, what you can do about pests and diseases in in future podcasts without reaching for that pesticide bottle. Yay. Um, and the final thing you can do in your garden is to encourage bees actually to nest. Um, so you can go out and buy a bee hotel or you can make one. So there's loads of really easy to find uh, designs online. They're especially good for, uh, for solitary bees. Um, but also if you have an area of sort of bare light or sandy soil, then... Um, bumblebees might go and nest in the soil. Yeah, we often dig them up. I mean, obviously, this isn't, this isn't, <laughs> yeah, not on purpose. Um, the telltale sign really is in early spring, just hearing a really low, very loud rumble under the soil. And yeah, we've we've dug up a few of these solitary bees, um, but we're always very careful to put them back when we do. And we can give tips on that later. Yeah, so if you want to make your garden good for bumblebees, um, well, and just for bees in general, then the Bumblebee Conservation Trust um, have put together a really nice little pack of information called Making Green Spaces for Bumblebees, which you can download on their website. Okay, well, thanks, Ben. As far as bad news goes, I think we've managed to end that on a bit of a positive and hopefully all of you listening will go and do at least one of the things that we've suggested, um, which would be really good. But I get to do the good news, which is even better. And it is good news. I want to do it next week. Yes, you can do it next week. That's fine. Um, this pertains to a butterfly species in the UK. So in the UK, we've actually got 59 species of native butterfly. Um, and that actually includes some regular migrants as well, like the painted lady, which in the last couple of years, we've had quite a few um coming across from Africa. It's an amazing species. They travel thousands of thousands miles. Thousands of miles. Um, but we're not talking about that one today. Today, we're talking about the Duke of Burgundy, which is a lovely little butterfly. Um, it's got a wing. It's, it is actually quite small. It's got a wingspan of about 35 millimetres, but it is absolutely beautiful. Definitely look it up. Um, they tend to live in small colonies in grassland and cleared woodland, 
And they're mostly found in isolated little pockets in south and central England and in the northeast and northwest. So I think that's the Lake District and the North York Moors. So really tiny little populations. Um, obviously, they were, unfortunately, they we did used to have more of them. And their populations have been recorded as being down by about 84% since the 1970s. Um, and that's down to overgrazing and just general loss of habitat. And which is obviously very sad. However, another important organisation that we will mention lots in in coming weeks is the Butterfly Conservation Trust. And through monitoring and lots of different, quite intensive conservation efforts, they've managed to uh, record in the last year in the Kent and South East London branch, the best year for Duke of Burgundy butterflies for 25 years which I think is a is a great uh, reversal of that trend. And it just goes to show again that things can be done. Um, there's also been, I should mention, intense ongoing conservation works in the northern populations that I mentioned as well. And, and all of it is having benefit beneficial impact on the uh, on the Duke of Burgundy. Yeah, sometimes conservation work can it can take a while to have an effect, but it's just a yeah, it's a great sign that things are turning around for the species. It also goes to show that, so we mentioned earlier that we're going to get quite geeky and specific with some of these things, but some of that in very detailed knowledge is what helps us really know how to have the most impact on things like the Duke of Burgundy and bee populations. So we now know um, that the Duke of Burgundy, once it emerges in early summer-ish, they actually lay their eggs on the underside of primrose leaves and cowslip as well. Um, the caterpillars, which are quite small, then emerge and then they eat those leaves. And that's part of the, a very important part of their life cycle. Um, and then they sort of munch them over the summer. They don't completely decimate them, don't worry. Um, and then they overwinter in tusky grass as a chrysalis. So by knowing that, that's that's basically how these conservation efforts can target these species and and help reverse their their population declines. And also the reason why we've chosen the primrose as our native plant of the week this week, which we'll be going into lots more detail about later. So yeah, in terms of the Duke of Burgundy, how can maybe you help? Um, so first of all, I would say, as we mentioned earlier again, the Butterfly Conservation Trust, we'll put the link in onto our, our various uh, Twitter handle and Facebook page. It's through their membership that they can actually implement these conservation works. But another thing you could do maybe in your own garden is um, is to look up on, on the Butterfly Conservation Trust maps and see whether you actually have a population of them very close to you. So as I said, they're mostly south and central England and northwest and northeast. So yeah, their website's brilliant. You can mm. just go on, have a look at loads of different butterfly species uh, and moths as well. Oh, and they've yes. got, um, yeah, just they've, for each species, they've got a distribution map and it just has little red dots for where they've been recorded. So you'll be able to see if they're anywhere near you. Yeah. And so if you know you've got a population near you, why not just plant a lot of primroses? So yeah, that's the good news. Go Duke of Burgundy. Go Duke of Burgundy. Um. And yeah, so moving on from that, we also we found a few events that we wanted to share with you. And so we're going to try and keep these obviously focused to gardening and wildlife. And this time of year, not so many specifically gardening events, especially with a pandemic on. 
However, we have managed to find a couple of events uh, regarding wildlife. Yeah, if you're really into moths, then, or you want to be into moths. And Who doesn't? We all should be. Um, I mean, just moths are amazing. I just, if you've, if you've got a, a spare hour and you really want entertaining, then go and have a look at some of the moth names. Um, there's one, oh, there's just loads. Hebrew character. Hebrew char- yeah. The Uncertain. Yeah. Oh, The Uncertain. That's a great That's one. That's a great one. Green Arches. Yeah, and they're, and they're, a lot of them are Angle shades. A lot of them, I think, are more beautiful than butterflies, dare I say it. That's a, that's a strong statement. It's a strong statement, <laughs> but true, but very true. Well, if you agree, then you might want to go to the UK Moth Recorders meeting. So um, this is online on the Saturday 30th of January. Now, it's, it's split into two parts, and the first bit is a meeting that's open to anybody interested in moth recording. And, yeah, and so by recording, you mean counting the species, obviously. Yeah, and at home, you can either go ahead and buy or borrow a, a specific moth trap, which is sort of a, a light on top of a load of boxes, which they crawl into, and you can then record them in the morning. But it's dead easy just to set up a white sheet outside so you can hang it on a washing line and just shine a a bright white light at it and you'll see the moths come. We've done this in our very urban terraced house garden, uh, much to probably the alarm of most of our (laughs) uh, neighbours. But it is fun and you'd be surprised what what is fluttering around at night. Um, Yeah, Yeah, so um, if you are more interested in doing some serious moth recording... Um, this year, then why not go along to that meeting online? Yeah, and the event I'm sharing is is kind of similar to that. It's all about recording species that you find in your garden. Um, it's a probably more well-known one, and it's the RSPB Big Garden Bird Watch, which this year runs for three days from Friday the 29th of January. That's to the 31st. Everyone with a garden, including us, and we will be doing it, and we'll probably be sharing what we actually see as well with you all in a few weeks. Um, everyone with a garden can get involved. It's actually, amazingly, the world's largest bird survey and that has now amassed over 40 years of data, which is really incredible. It only takes one hour of your time and who doesn't want to sit and watch their garden birds for an hour with a cup of tea? I certainly do. And you essentially just record the birds that come into your garden and the RSPB on their website can give advice on, well, first of all, identification. So if you're uncertain, then... Well, don't don't be afraid. If you if you see something you're not unsure of, then take a quick snap of it and put it on one of the many many Facebook pages. And people will always very much be helping, or wanting to help you identify those birds that are coming to your bird feeders. Yeah, the RSPB website is just brilliant. They've got some yeah really good images, so um, drawings and photos that really help you identify. But on the event page for the Big Garden Bird Watch, they've got a load of downloadable ID resources as well. Yeah, so uh, I think the RSPB this year are inviting people um, as a preference to fill in their records online, aren't they, just to minimise paper waste? Yeah, you can do it by post, but if you do it online... Um, they, it's more if, immediate, isn't it? Yeah, they, they just... get their results out so quickly. Yeah. Um, and part of it is, and uh, you know, especially this year, being able to do it online is is really helpful to them as well. Yeah, or if you struggle to do that, then if you, you can actually apply to them and I'll do it sooner rather than later so it arrives in time, um, a, a, basically a paper pack where they, they give you all the information that you need to start recording your birds. And then there's also a free post address to be able to, to send that uh, form to, which is useful. So just a couple of points. They say the RSPB website will give 
lots more detail about exactly how you do this, but it is important to only record the birds that come to your garden. And they're just really interested to see how important your Anais garden are for these bird species. Um, so, for example, since the 1970s, because of the bird watch, we've seen massive, you know, reported increases in numbers of goldfinches, long-tailed tits uh, and woodpeckers as well. We used to have a woodpecker come to my family garden, which is always a delight. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, nice green one. Um, that would be then the green, the woodpecker. green woodpecker. Thank you. And um, it was actually also one of the first surveys to identify the decline of song thrushes in gardens. And before that, this species was a top 10 visitor, I think 1979. But by 2019, numbers had declined by about 75%. So, um, yeah, it's only really through the citizen science surveys that we know that this is actually happening. And Therefore, the conservation work that people like the RSPB and you and I can do can target where those problem areas are. So even with the moths as well, it's all important. Recording is kind of the first step in conservation, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, with house sparrows, everybody just thought they were everywhere because they were everywhere. So nobody even really bothered to check. Quite often that happens. Yeah, it's only through, um, you know, bird surveys that we realise that their numbers were really sort of dropping massively they've dropped by about half since the 1970s but again through surveying and through people just putting out bird feed and looking after the birds and you know don't rip out your hedges they're really important privet hedges in particular um great for house sparrows and so their numbers have come back by about 10 percent in the last 10 years so again we only know that because people are going out and uh noting down what they see yep all good stuff Um, And while we're on the RSPB, we'll also mention the British Trust for Ornithology because they also, they run the Garden Bird Feeding Survey as well. Yeah, if you get hooked on um, watching birds in your garden, then the BTO survey is year round and it's just good fun. It is indeed. Cup of tea, sofa, watch the birds. Yeah, we've just got starlings have arrived for the year um, at our bird feeders at home. But I know if we go down to my dad's house, um just the thousands of starlings squabbling over the bird food is just i think he <laughs> spends hilarious. i think he spends more on bird food than he does on human food yeah. <laughs> they yeah, are he quite doesn't hungry feed me as well as the birds when no. i visit um were you going to mention the journal article as well oh yeah i mean if you access. want to know more about um uh, what birds have started coming into gardens, then we'll link to a journal article which tells you everything you need to know. And it's using data from the BTO survey. Cool. Well, so that is a roundup of this, uh, the, the news and events for this podcast. So we're going to move on to the native plant of the week, which we've already said is the primrose or Primula vulgaris to give it its proper Latin name. Yeah. So I think most people are pretty much aware of the primrose, but if I not, then so. you can have a look online. Um, and we sort of just always knew them as a native plant. So we, you know, we like to plant them in lots of gardens anyway, because they're pretty easy to grow. But we really just knew them as a pretty scented little yellow flower. Um, yeah, you do have to get quite close to them to smell them. But when they're planted en masse on a bank or something, as soon as the sun hits them, you'd be surprised. They, oh they yeah, can... top tip for scent. If you grow it on a raised bank, then obviously it's just nearer to your nose, so you don't have to bend down to smell it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's get into the detail of primroses. Like I said, they're a great garden plant, but they actually have some really interesting little quirks. And we've found out by reading about them that they're also a fantastic wildlife plant. 
Um, so just to give you a bit of the background, the primrose, the name, um, comes from prima or primus rose, um, which just means first rose, but really it means first flowering. So that's just because they come out so early in the spring. Mm-hmm. And as we said before, they, there are a few in flower already this year, which is nice to see. Yep, they're native, um, but they actually grow all over Europe. So I was amazed to find out that yeah, they grow all the way from Norway in the north down to the tip of North Africa. And they grow everywhere from sort of sea level right up to 2,500 metres above sea level. It's an absolutely phenomenal it's geographical range. It's an enormous range. range. So they're very successful little plants. They haven't got far into Africa, but they did get there. Um, and we know for sure they've been in cultivation since at least the 15th century. But it's probably one of those things where nobody bothered to ride it down before. So it could well be that they've been cultivated either ornamentally or for medicinal use for many centuries before that. And they have been taken for a number of medical complaints. Yeah, I think probably, well, I mean, there are a lot of herbalists out there now, so I don't I don't know if they, they're still used. I guess they are, but I have certainly seen them candied and then put on top of biscuits. Yeah, crystallised <laughs> and put on cakes. Slightly less medical, but, you know, delightful a bit all of the same. good for you. <laughs> <laughs> a bit less good for you, yeah. Um, yeah, and they, apparently they were the favourite flower of uh, Conservative Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli. Um, so when he died... Uh, Queen Victoria sent him a wreath of purely primroses for his funeral. That would be quite nice, I think. Pretty. Pretty, yeah. So let's get into the quirkiness. Oh, uh, I should probably, this comes with a bit of a a geekiness warning. Nerd alert. Nerd alert. Botany alert. (laughs) Um, Okay, so the flowers of primroses are interesting because they've got a unique way of preventing them from self-fertilising. So if we talk about the self-fertilisation first, the reason why plants don't want to self-fertilise... Some plants. Some plants, is that if you don't um, fertilise yourself, then you get genes from another plant into the seed. So that means you've got more genetic diversity. And if you've got more genetic diversity, you tend to have some offspring that's going to be able to cope with local conditions better or worse than other offspring. Hence being able to survive two and a half thousand meters up a mountain so yeah i mean if you looked at the genetic difference between plants in north africa and in norway they'd probably be 99 percent or more the same but there would be very very slight differences that mean they're able to cope with different um uh conditions slightly better or worse depending on where they are now it's not something that all plants worry about um there are benefits for plants to self-fertilize And that's because if it's a bad year for pollinators or there's bad weather um, or external conditions mean that um, there's not so many visitors to the flowers, they can still produce seed. Yeah. So if any of you have ever bought fruit trees, you're very likely to have seen self-fertile being given as an attribute. And and indeed, lots of different fruit trees are self-fertile, which enables you to get fruit in the absence of having more than one of that tree, which is really useful for a crop situation. Yeah, especially for a small garden. Mm. If you've only got room for one apple tree or something, then get self-fertile variety. But for primroses, they seem to have come down on the side of wanting to prevent self-fertilisation. Now, I'm about to give you the details of how they do this, but just one thing to note is that botanists have actually found populations of primroses that do prefer to be self-fertile. Um, so it's a really weird mix where they, they just can't work out why some have decided to become self-fertile. And also there's 
why they're not more successful because they actually produce more seed than the ones that don't like to self-fertilize. It's a so very complicated picture a very complicated for a very picture. small plant, isn't it? Which uh, goes to show just how much knowledge there is out there for us to research. Yeah, so <laughs> if you want to know more um, about all of the details of this, again, we're going to link a journal article with everything that you could possibly want to know about primroses down in the show notes. But we're going to talk about the hermaphrodite flowers. So flowers can be either male or female or hermaphrodite which means they've got both male and female parts within one flower. Now, hermaphrodite flowers can easily be self-fertilized, and that's because the male part holds the pollen, and the pollen needs to get onto the female part. Now, if you imagine the male and the female parts close together, then a bee arrives, it buzzes around, and it can easily knock pollen from the male to the female part. Primrose flowers are hermaphrodite, but they... Um, have an interesting way of preventing self-fertilization. So they have two types of flower, and these are called pins and thrums. Which is now one of my favourite botanical terminologies, I think. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> so it's, it's, uh, essentially botanists have looked really closely. Well, I say botanist. It was actually Charles Darwin who first um, He's pretty wrote well about known. this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you've never come across him before. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, so he wrote a uh, an article called On the Two Forms or Dimorphic Condition in the Species of Primula and on Their Remarkable Sexual Relations. And it really um, is remarkable, isn't it? It is remarkable. So he, he wrote about these pin and thrum flowers. So pin flowers have the female part, which is the female stigma, poking out the top of the flower and the male part tucked away on the inside, away down the flower tube. And thrum flowers are the other way around. So thrum flowers have the male part sticking out of the surface and the female part tucked away down in the tube. And the final thing you need to know is that the tubes are too narrow for bees and other larger flying pollinators to crawl down. So what this means is that you can't get a bee buzzing around both parts of the flower at the same time. It can only touch the female part on the pins and the male part on the thrums. So if a bee lands on a thrum flower, it picks up pollen, it then has to go to another flower looking for more nectar, and it lands on the female part. And that's how you get the pollen transferred from one to the other. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah, so just to recap, remember, if you had both of the parts close to each other, then the action of the bee buzzing around looking for pollen... And they can be quite... um energetic shall we say energetic, if anyone's yeah. watched a bee on a flower <laughs> um they could yeah they could easily knock pollen from the male to the female part and so you you might think well we're talking about wildlife surely if the bee can't actually get down into the flower then it's going to be difficult for the bee to access the nectar and after all that's what bees butterflies and loads of other pollinating insects that's what they're after they're after, they're after that sugary that sugar goodness yeah that's it and so Lots of species have got around this by developing what they call a long proboscis. And the proboscis is the, it's sort of somewhere between a tube and a tongue and it sticks out the front and they can shove it down the flower to access the nectaries at the bottom and the nectaries are what produces that nectar. So lots of bees can do this. Butterflies often have really long proboscis, um, but also bee flies. And bee flies, the genus is Bombilius 
and they're just our absolute absolute favorites they are so good to watch and you might if you know you'd be forgiven for thinking it was a bee there are flies that mimic bees after all but on watching them for a little while you can you start to recognize uh, the differences and we might even put a little photo we've taken quite a few photos of them over the, the years on yeah, our facebook have, yeah. page as well yeah and um i mean bee flies are are great because they can they often hover just outside the flower and you can actually see them poke it down into the flower. So and they, they resemble a hummingbird, I find, when they're, yeah, when they're like sort of hovering over. Yeah. So as Ben said, a few, well, there's quite a few species that feed on the, the sugary goodness of, a, of a, a little primrose. But you quite often see brim, brimstone and peacock butterflies with their long proboscises. Um, and then bumblebees like the common card or buff-tailed bee are quite well adapted to reach that, that sugar hit as well. And yeah, and beetles too. So although the bumblebees and the butterflies are too big to get down into the tube, smaller beetles can get inside. And one thing that uh, not so many people are aware of is that beetles will actually eat pollen. That's part of their food. Um, so when we're planting for pollinators, um, often it's thought we're just planting for nectar, but actually it's the pollen itself that is is. Uh, useful to lots of beetles so in the uk we have over 14 species of pollen beetle that will eat the pollen of um of primrose flowers and those guys if you don't know them are if you've ever worn a bright white or yellow or indeed high vis uh top on a hot sunny day and you find yourself covered in tiny black beetle beetles that's what we're talking about yeah they sort of think you're a massive I think they must just think you're a huge primrose, which must be really disappointing for them when they realise that you're not full of pollen. But <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um, um, but as well as as well as the uh, the actual pollen and the nectar part of the uh, the flowers, obviously we've already mentioned the Duke of Burgundy butterfly, whose caterpillars need the leaves of primroses to actually be able to build themselves up, ready to turn themselves into the butterfly the following year. And also a couple of the moths, and we mentioned that some of our favourite names, but these two are quite good as well. And that's the Langmaid's yellow underwing. I don't know who Langmaid was, but... Um, and green arches as well. And they both also feed on the leaves of the primrose. So all round, good plant to have in your garden if you want to see some of these species. Yeah, sparrows and bullfinches too. Oh, um, they're a bit less uh, refined in their methods though, aren't they? Yeah, they don't have the sort of long proboscis method of getting to the nectar. So instead they just rip off the whole bud and chomp it. Yeah, less less good in a in a garden setting maybe, but actually primroses, you know, and we do this as well, they tend to be planted en masse. So it's very unlikely that you're going to get swarms of bullfinches and sparrows coming down and decimating the whole population of a, of a big clump of primroses. Yeah, when you're planting for wildlife, it's just always better to plant more because part of planting for wildlife is accepting what some gardeners would consider damage is actually just you're providing food. Um, so if it's a particularly cold winter, if there's not many food sources around, then like we say, sparrows and bullfinches will go after that nectar because it's just a sugary hit for yeah, them. Yeah, don't blame them. We all we need something sweet every now and again. Yeah, so altogether primroses are small, but pretty mighty for wildlife, really. Um, and if you want to grow them in your own garden, they are dead easy. So they'll grow in sun, they'll grow in shade, damp or dry soil. doesn't really matter what the acidity of the soil is either. They're just really tough little plants. They are. And it was saying that 
They probably do flower their best when they are in that hedgerow or dappled shade situation, maybe under a tree. And, and also they can brighten up that area as well, if you, particularly if you've got a deciduous tree. So this is where I was working yesterday amongst some flowering primroses and they really just made what was otherwise a bit of a dark corner of the garden, a beautiful little sea of yellow. Yeah, there's um, been lots of research showing that they flower best if they have a bit of light. But also you don't want to put them somewhere they're going to burn in the sun. So Yeah, they go a bit they, floppy, don't they? Yeah. If they're in the midday sun and on a July hot summer's day. Um, but they will they will tolerate it. You quite often see them lose their leaves and then they'll regenerate when conditions are a bit more favourable. Um, so obviously they're hardy as well. They've got to cope with our, they are native, they've got to cope with our winters. Um and we, we tend to, when we put them in, we, we put them in naturalized together with other spring bulbs like um, and low flowering spring bulbs like crocus and, and also cyclamen. And we actually used to work in a garden where this this was the case. And it was, it was like a carpet of primroses, cyclamen, coombe, that is the spring flowering um, cyclamen. Yeah, and the Daphne mesereum, which is a, another native plant we'll be talking about um, in a future episode, they all flower about the same time, and so and they're all scented. Yeah. So uh, you know, it was just a whole carpet full of flower. There must have been hundreds oh, in what is only about a meter square. There would have been hundreds of flowers for early flying pollinators. And that's what we mean by naturalized as well. So obviously, these plants had all been allowed to set seed themselves. So you, what you essentially ended up with was a a natural carpet which probably started with one or two plants a few years ago and i really wish we could take credit for that particular display yeah we didn't but even do that we inherited that from someone else's garden <laughs> so we we can't take the credit but it's something well, that think... we we do we do try and mimic now because it really does look absolutely brilliant and i think um, the um actually the plants did most of it themselves it's not just the management as well. I mean, on mass, that's when these smaller plants have the biggest impact. So you kind of need a lot of them uh, yeah, to make them look really good. Yeah, one little primrose in a big border gets yeah, lost, doesn't it? It does get a little bit lost. But the other good thing, and this is probably going to come up lots and lots in future episodes, but with wildlife gardening, the more you learn about these very specific details of plants, the more you learn about how much wildlife can actually do a lot of your job for you. Um, and I will say again, we do work very hard. We don't just rely on the animals to do all our work we just for us. But sit there and watch, watch nature do it for us. But the uh, the primrose in particular, its seed actually has a, a an oil within it, and ants go a bit crazy for this. So what they tend to do is take it from the plant where the seed has been set, and they'll carry it off dutifully to wherever they want to have a, a nibble. And obviously, some of that then gets spread around, and that's a, a really good mechanism just to essentially just let nature do its thing um which is very very useful really yeah so if you want to cultivate them in your garden um so first of all you need to get hold of some plants so mm. we want to say definitely don't go out and collect them from the wild um, they're a native plant and they're very widespread but they have also been cultivated for so many hundreds of years if you went out and collected them for the wild you can never be sure if they were planted there by somebody or if they're the last remnants of a a real wild population they might have some sort of unique genetic um quirk also um, you can't just have everyone going out and collecting from the wild because then there would be none left whatsoever exactly um and that goes for everything so we'll we'll probably be mentioning that almost every episode <laughs> particularly with the native plants but you can get native uh, you can buy native 
um, primrose plant. So you want to be looking for a supplier that is producing UK grown plants from UK seed. So that's legitimate legal seed collectors um, going out, collecting seed, and then growing them on to sell uh, in nurseries and in the horticultural trade. Another thing that's that's something we just recommend on all plants. We we certainly try to source UK plants wherever possible because while a lot of our plants are still imported and there are no laws against that, it just is so much safer in terms of the UK wildlife situation to not be importing potential pests, diseases, and obviously that's that has made it into the news. And again, we will be talking about that in future episodes in more detail. But yes, it's really important. We, we tend to, if we find a new supplier of plants, we will outright ask them where their plants have come from and do, do try and uh, do the same thing. So you can buy primroses through nurseries, specialist nurseries, um, focusing on UK wildflowers. Um, one we often buy from is called Naturescape and they're based in Nottinghamshire, mm-hmm. but there's actually loads of different suppliers all over the UK and we'll be mentioning some of those in future podcasts too. So you can buy them as plugs and if you don't know what a plug is, it's basically a tiny potted plant with about sort of like a shot glass worth of soil and the plant will have one or two tiny little leaves. So they don't look very promising when you get them, but trust me, as long as you um, keep them well watered when they're planted, then they will take and you'll have loads of um, primroses in no time. And Dead of course, cheap as well. That's the, it. The that's the benefit. They are yeah. tiny, but they also cost pennies each, really. Um, so you can buy whole trays of them. You know, you can buy them a tray a hundred at a time um, for not much money at all. You can also put them down a seed if you want to go down that route. But then like anything from seed, it just takes that little bit longer and you can probably expect to wait about two years before they start flowering, um, which is fine in a garden. Two years is nothing. Yeah. And um, if you sometimes we'll do a mixture of seed and plants, so Mm. we'll buy some plugs, put them in, then do some from seed as well. And it means you've got some more plants coming on while the first set of plants get established. But once they are established, then they're so easy to split and propagate that way. So if you have a look at if you've already got some primroses or you've got a neighbour who's already got some, um, then just have a look at the clump. And if it looks like it's a load of plants tightly packed together, then that's because it is. So you can dig them up, split all the plants apart, replant half of them, and then the second half you can replant somewhere else and spread them that way as well yeah and a good reason to talk to your neighbor within the pandemic guidelines i should yeah. say at this point um yeah so as well as i mean well we've, we're going to put a photo of what the primula vulgaris looks like if you don't know on our facebook page but there are actually some strange and very beautiful natural variations that exist that have been taken by humans and cultivated, which you can actually go out and find to buy. And we recommend um, Hose in Hose, which I think is a really yeah, nice name. if you're into oddities. If you're into oddities and you want something a little bit different in your garden, then, yeah, it could be a bit of a talking point. Um, there's, there's one called Hose in Hose, which essentially just looks like a flower coming out of a flower. But it's not the same as a double flower. Which... It's two. It's a, a real primrose flower, out of which, out of the middle, is coming another whole primrose flower. So it's two flowers stacked on top of each other. Yeah, it, it, I, mean, I think it would probably have a bit more of an impact than maybe even just the the, the normal variety. But yeah, it's not it's not the same as a double flower though. So that's something that we actually um, 
basically try and avoid planting in people's gardens because usually double flowers, they might appear more gaudy and more showy-offy in a garden, but the petal, the extra petals that you get in a double flower comes usually at the detriment to all the other sexual parts. So that's the bit that gives the nectar, that gives the pollen, which is obviously so beneficial to our wildlife. So do avoid that. But yeah, the hose and hose is one that we recommend. And the second one is called um, Jack in the Rough. Oh, Jack ja- sorry, Jack in the Green. Which is, well, it looks like a normal primrose flower, but right around the flower, it's got, well, it's like a rough of yeah, like leaves an, like an elizabethan rough collar thing yeah it's quite it's quite pretty yeah it, it really helps the flower to stand out even more so it's still got normal leaves at the base but then the the flower is enclosed incl- by by green basically which makes the color really stand out yep so those are two that you can maybe go go ahead and put in your gardens so that's native plant of the week and Yeah, we're almost at the end of our first podcast. But before we go, we're going to share this week's book of the week. Take it away, Ben. Yeah, so this week it's a book by the British Trust for Ornithology, the BTO, and it's called Nest Boxes, Your Complete Guide, written by David Cromack, and it's also got forward by Nick Baker as well. Um, Now, this book is brilliant. So half of it is fact files on the sort of birds that you're going to find nesting, particularly in your gardens. Um, so if you want to know more about the species, about when they're laying their eggs, how many eggs they're having in a brood, all that sort of information, then it's really a great book. But the main draw is that it's got practical DIY guides for how to make a whole host of different designs of nest boxes. And it's important to know what you're trying to attract with your nest box, because the hole in the centre of the nest box in the entrance, that's what determines what will come and use it um obviously if the hole is too small for a species then it, it simply can't get, get it in, in. yeah yep. <laughs> um, so they give you um really easy to use construction designs um they'll tell you everything you need to know about what tools you're going to need um and it's just a step-by-step guide so they cover small and large nest boxes they'll also go into open nest boxes and really interesting designs for owls and even bats and different things like that but we're not going to go too much into more of the details of that because we'll be discussing it next time yeah and um yeah just it's a good time to do this sort of job because uh birds will be nesting from the springtime yeah i I think a lot of them are actually prospecting now i've seen a lot of uh, activity on facebook pairs of blue tits checking different places out and things in people's gardens which is nice so yeah now's the time to be giving them a helping hand yeah, of course, in the normal year, you could just go out and buy them, but it might just be easier to make some of your own. I think it's something to do. Something to do. <laughs> Passes the time. Um, we'll put the ISBN number um, in the show notes as well and give you some suggested places that you can go and buy it if you wanted to read along with us. And if you do end up doing anything from the book, then let us know on our Facebook page. Yep. Always get in touch if you can. That would be nice. So just to finish off, you can find our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash the wildlife garden podcast. And on Twitter, we are the wild GDN. Uh, So you can always just search the wildlife garden podcast in the search bar there. And we'll be posting about the podcast. And also that's a good place for us to share news as well. And if you're interested in our professional work, um, what we do day to day, then we've got our own website, which is elliswellies.com. 
and a Facebook page for that, which is facebook.com forward slash Ellie's Wellies Gardening. And we also do a, a Wild Wednesdays on the on our business Facebook page as well, because we are obviously very interested in this and we're trying to promote it as many different ways as we can. And we'll showcase a different UK species every Wednesday with as much detail as we can cram into one Facebook post. Fab. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. And we'll be back in two weeks. Yep. Bye. Bye.